Man, I heard this story about a guy that was hitchhiking out to California. And a fellow picked him up. He said, where are you headed? He said, well, I'm headed to St. Josie. The guy said, well, he said, now listen. He said, you need to understand how west J's are pronounced as H's. He said, oh, okay, well, I didn't know that. I'm glad you, glad you informed me of that. So they're riding along, been an hour or two. He said, hey, are you hungry? You want to stop and get some lunch? He said, man, that'd be great. I want to get one of those burritos with some jalapeno peppers on it. He goes, now listen. He said, remember I told you that J's out west are pronounced like an H. He said, okay, my bad. So after lunch, they're getting a little closer, and the guy driving asked him, he said, so how long are you planning on staying out? He said, I don't know, maybe to Hoon or Hula. kind of how I feel preaching sometimes. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, that hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, we're so grateful for an opportunity to come together and study your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just meet with us and help this to be a time of encouragement. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn something tonight. Holy Spirit, be our helper tonight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Man, like I said, it's great to see everybody out. If you're a visitor, this is your very first time, I would encourage you to please come back. Uh, when the pastor will be speaking, uh, he's a treat. Um, but I'm glad to be here tonight, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you. I remember when I was middle school, probably. I guess I was in the eighth grade. And I remember meeting who I thought was the prettiest girl in the whole world. She was the preacher's daughter. Her name was Sunday Coleman. I will never forget her, man. I thought, man, this is it. I mean, this, this, it cannot possibly get any better than this. And uh, it, it, it uh, consumed me for quite a while. I mean, I had, I guess what you'd say, a crush on this girl because she was totally uninterested in me. But that didn't matter. I, I really, I thought that was it. Well, a few years later, I moved from one part of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex to another. And I'm going to a church in, in Arlington, Texas. And I remember it was in the springtime. And I came into church one Sunday morning. And my whole world changed. I had to reevaluate everything. Because I looked across the auditorium. And then, at that point, I had seen the prettiest girl that I'd ever seen in my life. There she stood. It was transforming. Well, that was just the beginning. Later on, that, that, I think it was that evening after church, the singles group and the teenagers, the high school group, went to Brahms Hamburgers to eat. And that's the first time I was actually introduced to her. Uh, she doesn't remember that day. I remember it. She has no clue that it even took place. But that's okay. It worked out. I married her. But <laughs> the thing is, my opinion of the situation what I was so confident of that this girl was the prettiest girl I'd ever seen changed when I then seen the prettiest girl that I'd ever seen. You know, there are things that happen in our life, things that occur that are life-changing, that are big events, much bigger than, than that little illustration I gave. I think about the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians is an autobiographical, that's a hard word to say, I practiced on it all day. It's an autobiography pretty much of Paul's life and how he had lived. And the purpose of the book is so that he can defend his apostleship because some false prophets had came in to Corinth and they had begun to, to, to cast doubt upon Paul and his apostleship. And so that's basically what the entire book is about. And the thing about Paul's life was there was a great change in it. 
Now, see, here's the thing you've got to understand about Paul. I, we view Paul as a, a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. But you've got to understand, Paul wasn't a bad guy. As a matter of fact, Paul was doing what he thought was the work of the Lord when he was persecuting these Christians. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He lived a great, moral, upstanding, uh, blameless life. But let me tell you something. That day on the road to Damascus, there was a tremendous, profound change in Paul's life. You know, I trust that on a Wednesday night that that the majority of the, the bulk of this crowd, there's been a moment in your life where there's been a great change for you. A, a Damascus Road event in your life where you come to a point in your life you realize that, that I'm lost and I'm dying and I'm on my way to hell and, and, and without repentance and turning from my sins and putting my trust in Christ, I'm bound for a devil's hell. And you got saved and put your trust in Christ. And at that moment, there should be or should have been a substantial change in your life. Now, here's the thing. I understand in a crowd like this that there are a lot of people in here that you lived a very sheltered, protected life. Maybe you were, grew up in a Christian home and your mom and dad were good Christians and church-going people and you went to the local high school here and you, uh, uh, your teachers were Christians and your school principal was a Christian and you lived in a moral small town community and you were the homecoming queen and you married the quarterback and you had little all-American kids and there really wasn't a big change as per se a life recovery person who has had to unleash themselves from the bounds of a crippling uh, addiction. We think about that as being a big change. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter. If you put your trust in Christ, there was a tremendous change in your life. Regardless of how much you think you had it all together and how moral your situation seemed to be. I remember one day, not too long ago, here recently, just a few months ago, I stepped on the scales. and I can't tell this illustration. You've got to know the numbers, and they're pretty embarrassing, but... I stepped on the scales and I looked down and I seen 299. And I said, man, I refuse to see 300. So I threw the scales away. Uh, At that moment right then, I realized that I had to make some changes. I had to make some adjustments. I had to do some things different. You know, if you look at verse 14 again, It says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. I want to look at that word constrain. That word constrain means to compel or to force, to urge with irresistible power or with a power sufficient to produce the effect. When I peered across that auditorium that Sunday morning and I seen Stacy standing over there, I was compelled. I was motivated. I said, I don't know who that girl is right there. I got to find out. I'm going to to meet her. And I began to go to work. And it was really interesting the way it worked out because she became friends with my sister-in-law who uh, was married to my brother. That's how that works. And uh, they were living with us at the time. And so she starts coming over the house and visiting my sister-in-law. Well, the plan of action takes place. It It goes into movement right then. I start working. And that's a whole different story and another sermon, another illustration. But the point that I want to make to you is that I became motivated. That's what that word constrain means. And Paul says here, he says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. I want to talk to you about some agents of change tonight. And the very first one is when you have that Damascus Road event in your life, when you have that life-changing event in your life, there should be some motivation that comes along with it. Just like when I seen the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life, at that moment, I became motivated. I wanted to meet her. I wanted to know her. I wanted to, 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 to... Find out what her favorite color was and what her favorite song was and see if I could change my favorite color to that. You know, whatever I had to do, I became motivated. You know, motivation is really a catalyst for change. Have you ever seen one of those 
chemistry experiments where they have the, the test tubes and the guy's got the liquid and he pours it in and all of a sudden when those two elements combine, when those two liquids mix, a, a reaction occurs and it turns into that big foam and comes spewing out of the, out of the test tube. That is a catalyst. That those two liquids are motivated to change. You see, when we are when we are saved, when we put our trust in Christ, this verse here tells us that, that we should be motivated, constrained to change. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. When I think about what Christ did for us when he died on Calvary and paid our sin debt for us, I'm motivated to want to, I'm obligated to want to do something to reciprocate that love. That's exactly how we should all be. We should be motivated by the love of Christ. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, by the faith of the Son of God, who hath loved me and gave himself for me. Now when I think about God sacrificing his only son to pay my sin debt on Calvary, that is a motivator. You heard me tell stories about my son. There's a funny story I tell about taking him to kindergarten the first day, and I won't tell it because I think I've used that illustration in here before, but uh, that was a profound event in my life. I greatly underestimated how traumatic that was going to be when I had to leave him at kindergarten. And I made the statement, and actually several people uh, said it back to me or, or, or said that, that it had an impact on them. And the point that I made was, my son's sitting right back there. This is a big group of people. And I'm going to tell you right now, if somebody came in and told me this evening that you all were going to have to die or he was going to have to die and I got to make the decision, I hate to tell you this, but you all are in trouble. Okay? Because I'm not sacrificing my son for any of you. It's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't care about you. I'll pray for you, but I'm not trading him for you. I'm just not doing it. I'm, I, I can't. I'm not put together like that. But God, how many of you have a son? How many of you guys in here, especially you men, you got a son. Man, does he not mean a lot to you? Is he not the greatest thing in the world? There's nothing I like better than sitting in. We've got a double recliner in our living room. And man, he sits there with me and we watch TV shows or football games. One of the greatest times in my life is to sit there with him and watch an Alabama football game. I'm not trading for you. It's just that simple. But God loved us so much that he was willing to sacrifice his only son to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. Now, if that doesn't motivate you, then you didn't get the same thing I got. You, you didn't have the same change, the same transformation in your life, not because of something I did, what God did in me. It's a great motivation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 talks about how that we have been de- he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Yeah, I think about the proximity of where we used to be and where we are now. We talk about this a lot in life recovery. And, and we, you know, people who are in recovery, we struggle, we get down, we get depressed, we get tore down because of our past. But you know what? There comes a point in life where you've got to stop thinking about those things and worrying about those things from your past. And you've got to look at the thing from the standpoint of look at where I used to be and where I am now and how much God has done for me. There's a story about a little orphan boy. Or actually, the story's about a king. The king didn't have any children, and he wanted an heir to the throne, so he began to scour the countryside looking for a boy that he could adopt and would be his son and he could leave his throne to. Well, <clears throat> he looks and looks and just can't seem to find the right boy, the right fit, the one that would be his. And He's about to give up, and they pull up to an orphanage, and he's getting out of his carriage, and he looks down, and there's this little boy sitting over in the dirt playing. He's got a little Kool-Aid mustache. Remember Kool-Aid mustaches? They weren't gray. (laughs) They were red. He's sitting down there in the dirt playing, and he's messy and dirty, and immediately the king knows that's the boy. So he adopts this little boy, and he takes him home. He has his own bedroom, gets him all new royal clothes. He's got a manservant that takes care of him, a butler. And his whole life is transformed. His own bedroom, his own bathroom. Well, the butler got to notice him that every day a little boy would come down and he could tell that he'd been crying. So he decided that he was going to 
observe and watch and see what it is, what was going on with the little boy that, that, you know, he just assumed that for some reason he must not be happy. So the next morning when he woke him up, he stood outside of his door and the little boy came out of the bathroom and he walked over to the dresser and he opened up the bottom drawer and he pulled out those little tattered clothes that he was wearing when the king found him and he put those clothes on and he walked over and he stood in front of a mirror. He went over and he took the clothes out, put them back in the drawer and put his clothes back on and Butler slipped downstairs and had his breakfast ready for him. The little boy comes down, sits down to eat. And the butler said, sir, I'm confused. Are you unhappy here? He said, well, no, I'm not unhappy. He said, well, I've noticed every morning when you come down, you've been crying. And he said, and I took the liberty to observe you this morning. And I noticed the ritual that you went through this morning. And I really don't understand that. And he said, well, he said, I just want to remember what the king has done for me. You know, when we think about what all God has done for us, how he's transformed our life for this pure purpose, for no other reason than he loved us. That's what that verse says right there. For the love of Christ constraineth us. God sacrificed his only son. Jesus was willing to come to earth and submit himself to death on the cross for no other reason than he cared and loved us. What a great thing that is. And you know what that should be for us? That should be a motivator for us, an agent of change, a thing that makes us want to be different. Well, as we go on, look at the next verses here. I want to show you this picture. You look at this picture right here. And when I was a kid, that picture right there would have got me in trouble. Not the picture, but if our yard looked like that. I'd have been in trouble because to me, when I see that picture, the only thing I think about is the grass needs cutting, right? That represents some sweating. And when I was a kid growing up, we lived in a, in a neighborhood, you know, in a subdivision in Dallas-Fort Worth, and you had to bag all the grass and put it. In, it was just, it was terrible. I was really mistreated as a child. Um, but here's the thing about that picture. This is really what it looks like. See, when you back off, the picture looks totally different, doesn't it? Doesn't it look like a beautiful place where me and the prettiest girl I've ever seen could maybe have a picnic together? Looks like a great place you could go and maybe just sit out in the meadow or underneath one of those trees and do a little reading, take a nap under the tree. That's great. Isn't it a beautiful picture? But you know what? You still hadn't seen all of it. If you really back off, that's the picture. You know what the problem is with so many of us? As we stop at that first picture. We look at things, our view of things is the very first picture. And we, we sell ourselves short. We, we, we deprive ourselves of the big thing because we're not seeing it all. You look in verse 15, verse 15 of, of that same chapter. It says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now listen to this next verse. It's kind of confusing. It says, wherefore, henceforth. Now, that's two really kind of big words put there together. What, it, what, what those two words there together mean is because of the past, this is how we deal with the future. Or because of that back there, this is what we do going forward. It says, wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Now, what does that mean? This is what this means. We've been saved. We've had this life change. But as a result of this life change, we have some different motivations in our life now that begin to change us. And because of that, when I look at a person now, I don't see this person as affluent or poor, upper class or lower class. I don't see this person as an African-American or as a white person or as a Hispanic person. That's not how we as Christians view people. We don't see them after the flesh. We as Christians should view people from a spiritual standpoint. And they fall under one of two categories, either lost or saved. And that's how we should see the world. Either they're saved, they've been converted, they're born-again Christians, or they're lost and on their way to hell. There's really only two options. There's no in-between. This verse goes on to say that, Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh... Yet now henceforth know we him no more. What he's saying, Paul is talking to some people in this group that actually knew Jesus and was around him on a, on a personal basis on the earth when his ministry was going on in the earth. And those days are over. Jesus is not walking the earth in a fleshly way anymore. He's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And you see, things change. 
There are different dispensations in the scripture. There are different approaches. And time has a way of making things different than what they once were. Nothing changes things more than salvation. Conversion changes a person from what they once were to what they are now. And that love of Christ is a motivation to change us and make us see things in a different way. That thing, those pictures is all about the second point. The second agent of change in our life is perspective. We just view things different than how we used to view them. You see, motivation causes us to actually get up. You know, when I seen that 299 on the scale, I began to think about some things that I had to do different. I began to be motivated about some things that I had to do different. And, and when I began to be motivated, it began to work on me internally. And that's when my perspective of that thing used to begin to change. As much as I love Nutty Bars, and you're all familiar with that, if you come to Life Recovery. Uh, as much as I love Nutty Bars, as much as I love a bowl of ice cream late at night while I'm watching TV, that Nutty Bar, that bowl of ice cream, was going to cause me to tip that scale up on over a spot that I really didn't want to see. So as I was motivated, and I began to change my perspective about nutty bars and late-night ice cream. That's what happens to us. When, when, you're ch- when you see these changes take place in your life, what these verses are telling us is, first of all, you should be motivated by the love of Christ and what He's done for you. Second of all, you should be your perspective, your, your view of things should change. You shouldn't see things the way that you once seen them. Things are different. I got this rope here for this illustration I wanted to show you. Now, I want you to imagine that this rope, man, that's a lot of rope. Keep going, Buchanan. Well, I need that on my boat. Well, I really don't have a use for it after this. <laughs> Go on. Now, you see, this rope is a, is a representative of a timeline. Not that far, man. Come on. It's always... It's all the way up in mission control. This rope is a timeline, and it represents your life. You know, we are eternal beings, right? There really is no end to us. This represents our eternality as a being. Now, on the end of this rope down here, this little red part right here, this represents our life. It's a very short portion of this big, long timeline. And you know what's amazing to me? And what's difficult to wrap our minds around is that so much of what we do here in this little short period has a profound effect on what all of that's going to be like. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? And you know what's crazy to me? Is that we stress out so much about this right here. People live this part of their life down to about right here and all they're consumed with and living for right here is trying to acquire more things and more stuff and more money because they want to be able to retire and enjoy this last little bit right here and not have to work real hard and not have to put forth a whole lot of effort. Man, I can be retired, maybe do some traveling. That's crazy, isn't it? Because we're worried about this little bitty spot right here on the red and we forget about all of that right there. Because we're consumed with this. Do you see what a a crazy perspective that is? We live our lives and we are motivated. We are consumed with with one of three things and you got to ask yourself, how am I spending this red section right here? What am I doing with my time? In this red section, how do I spend my time? Okay? Now look, I like TV and Netflix as much as the next guy. You know what that 19 seconds between shows is for? That's 19 seconds for you to decide if you're going to do anything with your life. (laughs) I usually say no and keep watching it. But you know, we spend that time in there. And I don't think when we get to heaven and we've watched 8,000 movies, it's going to matter much down there, is it? I watch movies, I watch TV. But as I thought about this and I tried to change my perspective on the difference between temporal versus eternal, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, For we look not upon the things which are seen, that's this, but the things which are not seen, that's that. Because the things which are seen are temporal and the things which are not seen are eternal. We spend all of our time worried about this red section right here and we fail to look at all of this right here. We waste so much time 
What about your talents? Man, there's some of you in here, you're talented people, and the only thing that you do is use that in a secular world in some type of career, trying to better yourself. And I get that. There's nothing wrong with that. I want my kids to go to school and get educations and have a good life. But you know what? I'd rather my kid be illiterate but have a good relationship with God than be a, have a Ph.D. and die and go to hell. Because this right here means nothing in comparison to that. This right here will determine all of that. What about this? What about your treasure? What are you doing with your money in this period right here? It's tax season. You have a $1,000 tax return. All you can think about is I can't wait to go to Gulf Shores. We're going to go eat some seafood. We're going to sit on the beach. We're going to get some sun. It's going to be a great time. I can't wait. Let me ask you something. When you get down here, do you think that day, that weekend at the beach is really going to matter that much? Honestly. But let me ask you this. What if you took that $1,000 you spent on that, that weekend trip to Gulf Shores and you gave it to missions? How would that affect down here? How about a big change, wouldn't it? That can have a big effect. That can have a profound effect on people that die and either go to heaven or they go to hell. What are you doing with your, what are you doing with your riches, with your treasure? The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Yeah. That's what really matters to you is where you spend your money. What if I took that money and I did something that would have an effect on eternity? You know, Paul talks about, in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about that day. You realize that that day is coming where we will stand before God as Christians and we'll be given account for our works and what we've done and everything that we did during this red section right here, we will have to stand before God and it will dictate how all of the rest of this goes. And I ask you this evening, how's your perspective on things? Is it temporal? You know that house that you're trying to buy? Me? Does it really matter? Is it going to matter way down there? Oh, I've got to have a house. got to have a place to live. I get that. I understand that there are things we've got to do to live. What if you bought a house that your payment would be $50 a month less than what you originally intended to buy? And you just decided, you know what? I'm just going to get that $50 a month of missions. I'm a missions and outreach pastor, so you just got to take some of this. <laughs> Trying to, okay, I'm trying to get all my chance, shots in at you that I can about missions. Is that, is that little bit smaller house? What about, what about the car you drive? Now, you know what the great thing is? I don't have the boggiest idea what any kind of car any of you drive. So I can just say anything, and it can't be personal because I don't know. But do you really have to drive that, that really high-dollar luxury import? Now, I know it's getting a little personal. I'm getting in your... I realize I'm getting in your cereal right now, but is it necessary? Do you have to have that $50,000 pickup truck? Or could you take a little less and invest in that in something eternal? Because that truck's going to rust. Wheels are going to fall off of it. The engine's going to blow. It's going to rot down. That house is going to, it could burn up tomorrow. All of these things are temporary. They're temporal. But you see, when this change takes place in your life and you are motivated by the fact that you come to grips that a God loved me so much that he gave his only son to die on a cross for me, that motivation will have a change. It will have an effect on your perspective of life and how you see things. Stop looking at the little piece of grass that needs to be mowed and understand that God wants to give you that whole big picture. But you're focused on that little red part, that 70, 80 years. The Bible talks about how that life is like a vapor. It appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And then you have all of eternity to deal with the choices that you made while you're on earth. Listen, I, I, my desire, and I don't always go... It doesn't always come to fruition, but my desire is to make decisions and choices in this life that when that day comes, I can stand before God and other, either one or two things is going to happen. You're either going to be, you're either going to have rewards or regret. One or the other. It's all about rewards and regret. I prefer to have the rewards to give back to Jesus. Well, 
Motivation, as we talked about, engages thought. And as you begin to think and ponder and uh, roll these things around in your head, it'll force you to adjust your perspective. You'll have to change how you see things. These things will increase your knowledge. Knowledge dictates what you believe, and belief will determine how you behave. You get that? You want to know how somebody really believes? Watch how they behave. I'll give you a case in point. Now, this is, again, I may be meddling here, but it's the Holy Spirit's fault. He's leading. I'm just kidding. That's what you do. You just blame it on the Holy Spirit if you say something crazy while you're preaching. If you really believed the Bible, and you really believed that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child and the rod of correction will drive it far away, you'd stop counting at your kid. Well, I didn't get any amens there, did I? Did you notice that? You'd stop counting to your child. You'd stop putting him in time out, and you'd start wearing him out. Now, I, I, I know, I understand, I realize that you think I'm meddling right now, but that's, that's just, that, I'm not, that's Bible. That's what it teaches us in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs talks about the blueness of the wound. You know what, I've had bruises on my legs before from a whipping, and I'm still good. <laughs> and some of you know some of my testimony, you say, well, it don't look like it did any good. Well, there's a time there it didn't, but... The Bible says uh, that when he is old, he'll not depart from it. I'm old now, so. But if you really believe the Bible, if you really believed it, it would affect how you behave. You know what? Husbands, if you really believed the Bible, you'd love your wife like you should. You wouldn't put things in front of your wife. You wouldn't put hobbies and personal interests ahead of your wife. You know what, wife? If you really believe the Bible you'd submit to your husband, whether you liked it or not, whether you necessarily agreed with it or not, or you felt like it was the best way. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, wives, submit to your husband as long as you agree with him. That's not what it says. The Bible says for you to submit to your husband. And if you really believe that, and you believe the Bible, and you trusted it, and you trusted God and his word and what it said, it would affect how you behave. But you know what it really affects? Verses 18 through 20 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God." You know what the third thing that happens? The third agent of change. First, you have motivation, and that motivation causes you to see things from a different perspective, and that perspective affects your action. It causes you to behave in a different way. The third thing is your action. That's an external change. The first one was a catalyst for change, the motivation. The second one, that perspective, is an internal change where you begin to see things in a different way. That last one starts to affect your actions, which is exterior change. What you believe affects how you behave. And what this passage talks about here, first word I want to look at there is ministry. That word ministry is used in that passage there. Ministry, as the 1828 dictionary defines, as agency or service, business or employment. So what that means is that we've been employed. We have a job. We have a business or a service that we've been given to do. Numbers chapter 4, greatest way to define a word in the Bible is to allow the Bible to define the word. So if you go back to the very first place of mention for the word ministry, it's in the book of Numbers where uh, Moses is talking to the uh, Levite priests and he refers to the things that they do in the temple as the ministry of the temple. That's the work or the duties or the jobs that those guys perform in that temple setting, that tabernacle setting. That's what the word ministry means. Next word I want to look at is reconciliation. That word reconciliation means to be joined back together. 
the greatest, probably, unfortunately, the thing we recognize the most is irreconcilable differences. That's a legal term that when a couple can't get along anymore, they can't be joined back together. So they are irreconcilable. The word reconcile, though, means to join back together. David, it's a great story about David in uh, 1 Samuel, where he is, he's joined up with the Philistines because of Saul's torturous pursuit of David. He just couldn't take it anymore, so he made a really a bad decision and decided he's just going to hook up with the Philistines for a while. So he's kind of working as a double agent and staying with them because he got some protection from the Philistines. And the day came that the Philistines were going to war with the children of Israel, the Israelites. So David and his men show up on the Philistine side and they're lined up getting ready for battle. And the princess of the Philistines come by and she asks one of her generals, Who are, what are these guys doing here? She's very upset and very angry. And he says, well, they hadn't done anything but prove they're with us. So, you know, I thought we could use them in the battle. She says, oh, no, you send them back to wherever you've been keeping them. Because here's what might happen. Once we get into battle, they may change their mind and be reconciled to their master. That's the word she used. That word reconciled means to be joined back. Now, in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about how that through Jesus we have been reconciled to God. We've been joined back to God. What is it that caused the separation? Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You've got to go all the way back to the story in the Garden of Eden which I, for one, would like to go on record to say that I believe that it went down exactly the way the King James Bible tells us that it went down. Regardless of what some popular preachers would say today, I don't believe it was a creation myth. I believe it was a real thing, a factual thing, where Adam and Eve were in a utopian society in the Garden of Eden. God had created a wonderful situation, and everything that God had created, he followed up with, and it was good. He creates man, and man was created for the purpose of fellowship with God, to be able to worship God and offer Him praise and honor as the ultimate creator and being. But you know what? God recognized something. He came to Adam. He said, Adam, I see that you're really down and all of the, 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 the animals have a mate and the birds have a mate and everybody. He said, but you're alone. He said, I'm going to create somebody for you that will be your companion, your best friend help you tend the garden and take care of the animals, be your closest companion, the greatest thing you could possibly imagine. He said, but it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. He said, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> he should have gave up the arm and leg. <laughs> well, I know the story about Adam and Eve. And they're living in this perfect situation. And there was one rule. Don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I've heard people ask the question, why in the world would he put the tree there? Why didn't he just leave it out? Because with the absence of evil, there is no good. The Bible says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There had to be some commandment that Adam and Eve kept for the purpose of proving their love to God. Somebody asked me one time if I thought there'd be coon hunting in heaven. It was the previous pastor, Brother Grubbs. I found out he used to go coon hunting with me a lot, and I found out years later he told me he hated it. He only went with me because I was a church member. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Lesson in that is preacher don't really like to do everything you ask him to do. He does it because he's nice. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. He likes to be taken to buy new suits, I promise you. So if you want to do that, he'd appreciate that. But he asked me, he said, do you think there'll be coon hunting in heaven? I said, nope. He said, why not? You don't think we'll be able to do things in heaven that we enjoy and that we like? I said, I don't know. There won't be any coon hunting in heaven. He said, well, okay, well, why? I don't get that. I said, for one, there won't be any briars in heaven. You can't coon hunt without briars. It's a rule. He said, there won't, I said, there won't be any briars in heaven. I said, your dog would never run a deer and stay out all night if you were coon hunting in heaven. Every time you, you, you turn them loose, they'd strike quick, work a good track, and get treed, and you'd go in there and shine a tree, and there'd be the coon on the first limb every single time. I said, you know what? It's the nights that you lay out all night trying to get your dog up. You get caught in some cut over and you come home looking like you've been in a knife fight. I literally hunt all night before I had to come home, take a shower, and go straight to work. 
because my dog was laid out. But you know what? On those nights when I came home from work and I loaded up and I went hunting, treed two coons, and by 9 o'clock I've had a shower sitting in my recliner flipping channels. If I didn't have the bad nights, then I wouldn't appreciate how good the good night was. Does that make sense? Hey, everybody, everything's going to be okay. Air conditioning's just coming on. Rapture's not occurring. And just because I'm still standing here really doesn't prove that, but no, I'm just kidding. It's the really bad nights that made you appreciate the good nights. Without the bad, there is no good. And in that Garden of Eden, there had to be bad in order for there to be good. And you see, people want to propagate that false doctrine of Calvinism and say that God dictated that they eat of that tree. No, sir, he did not. What he did is he created Adam and Eve with a free will to make their own choice about whether or not they wanted to eat of that tree. If, if Calvinism's true and God dictates all of those things, then God made an adult touch a child inappropriately, and I don't believe that happened. What God did is he created man with a free will to make bad decisions and do wrong things that affect other people. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They exercised their free will, and as a result, they sinned. And the Bible talks about that they died immediately. Spiritually, they died on the spot. Physically, they died hundreds of years later. But spiritually, they immediately died. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. As a result of this sin, and as a result of the fact that we as mankind and humanity offended a holy God, that very thing separated us from God. So that in order for God to enjoy that fellowship and the purpose of the creation of man in the first place, there had to be an avenue for reconciliation. And that avenue was that God would send His perfect, sinless Son to die on a cross and pay your sin debt for me and for you so that we could put our trust in that work and be joined back to God, reconciled back to Him. What a wonderful thing that is. And that verse 18 says that all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great thing? Can I get an amen right there? Man, because of Jesus and what he did and his work on Calvary, we have the opportunity to be joined back to God, to be spiritually revived, to be able to have a relationship with a God that loved us and cared for us. But the motivation comes in the next part of the verse. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now just a few minutes ago we defined that word ministry and that is a job, a duty, something that we have to do. Those Levites did the ministry of the priests in that tabernacle. That was their job. Our ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. What that means is at one point we were separated from God. But because we put our trust in Christ, we were joined back to God. And we were given the duty and the job to go and get other people and bring them along with us so that they too can be reconciled back to God. We were given the ministry to go out and tell a lost and dying world that a Savior loved you enough, that a God loved you enough to send His only Son to die on Calvary and pay your sin debt. And all you have to do is put your trust in that work and you can be saved and join back to God just like me. You know, when I seen this picture right here, I had to come to grips with the fact I stood my throat thick, tears welling up in my eyes, just sick to my stomach thinking about that that person being cremated there at that Hindu temple. 99.5% of that country is, is Hindu. If you believe what the Hindu religion propagates, when you die, you go to hell for eternity. And based upon statistics, there's a 99.5% chance that those two people on those two spots that are being cremated, at that moment right there, we're in hell for eternity. That's a sobering thought. 
Now, maybe you didn't go to Nepal and you, you hear stories and you've asked me questions about it and you heard our presentation and you can't necessarily wrap your mind around that and maybe it doesn't mean that much to you. And I get that, I understand. It's different when you're there and you see it and you smell it and you are involved in it. But you can get this. You can understand this. What about this right here? What about that coworker? What about that person you work beside on the assembly line? What about that person that's in the next cubicle to you in your office pool? You realize if that person dies without Christ, they'll go to hell for eternity? Have you wrapped your mind around that? You see, we go back to the motivation of the fact that God loved us enough that he sent his son to die for us, and that should motivate us to live for him. And we, we step forward into that pers- perspective change and that rope and how we looked at how this little bitty part of our life dictates all the rest of that. And we think about the fact that the people that I can have an effect on, the people that I can share the gospel with, the people that I can bring along with me and reconcile back to God, that makes a difference in eternity. And that person that you stand beside, that person that you pass in the hallway at work, if they die without Christ, they go to hell for eternity. Maybe it's not the coworker. Maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe it's that person standing beside you in the grocery store. You ever just people watch? You ever just look at people, kind of check them out out of the corner of your eye? How do you wrap your mind around that? How do you wrap your mind around the fact that that lady standing behind me or that lady that's checking me out at the grocery store, she could be on her way to hell right now. And I have the answer. I have the solution to her problem. But I'm going to take it on home with me. I'm not going to share it with her. What about this right here? What about this person? Maybe this guy here, your neighbor, lives across the fence. You watch him every week cutting his grass, raking his leaves, cleaning out his gutters. You've never even walked over and introduced yourself to him. You've never even walked across the street to that person that you see leaving for work every day about the same time as you and introduced yourself. Much less told him that you're a Christian and asked them, if you die, do you know that you go to heaven? Are you sure about your eternal destination? You know why? I'll tell you why. Because we really don't believe it. We really don't. People talk about Bible colleges and, boy, I wish I could get a glimpse of heaven. I'm going to tell you something right now. What would help you way more than TBI and coming to church and being a part of this or getting a glimpse of heaven? If you could spend about 30 seconds in hell, you'd get a real good understanding and it'd motivate you. It'd change you. Because this guy that lives next door to you, this guy that lives across the street from you, that lady that lives in the house behind you, if, if they die without Christ, they go to hell. And they stay there for the entire length of that rope, which there is no end. Have you thought about that? Maybe it's not any of those people. Maybe it's these people here. You ever thought about these people? I don't know who these people are. You just imagine your family there. What about that cousin that you grew up with? You played cowboys and Indians in every square inch of the woods behind your house. Or that girl, that cousin that you played Barbie dolls with in your bedroom. And you giggled and laughed and told stories till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. You grow up and you graduate from high school and you go to different colleges and you get married and now you're living your own lives and they've got a life across the county and you live here and she works in Huntsville and you work in Birmingham and you don't have any idea if she died whether she'd go to heaven or not. You know why you've never shared the gospel with her? Because you really don't believe it. We really don't believe that people that die without Christ go to hell and spend an eternity there. Because if we did, it would motivate us. It would change our perspective. It would put some action behind what we're doing. God asked one thing of us. Mankind was created for the purpose of, of, of fellowship with the Lord, to bring glory to God. But Christians are left on earth for one purpose. And that is to be a witness and a testimony for, about, for what God has done for us. Because I could bring glory and honor to God a lot better if I were in heaven. I could fellowship a lot better if I could physically sit across from God and talk to Him. He left us here so that we could be a witness. He, he didn't even leave that to the angels. He left it to us. That's our job. The ministry of reconciliation. 
We should be motivated by the love of Christ. That love that motivates us should change our perspective on how we see things. That, that little bitty red part versus that entire rope. And that perspective, once it changes and we begin to view things and see them differently, we start to see these people no longer as, as a rich person or a poor person or a friend. or an We see these people as a soul that dies without Christ and goes to hell for eternity. And my question to you tonight is very simply, are you motivated? Do you have a perspective of lost souls that die and go to hell? Are you putting some action behind that thing? Every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, I'd just like you to, to take inventory of your own self. I know we don't have an invitation usually on Wednesday night. We're really not now, but I just want to have a little time of reflection here. I want you to ask yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing to, to make a difference in those that are dying without Christ? Am I putting some action behind? Am I working in the ministry of reconciliation? You know what? We got Easter coming up. One of the greatest things you can do is invite somebody to church at Easter. See this program, hear the great preaching, the singing. So many people come to Christ on Easter. Through the years here at Temple, there's just been throngs of people saved on those big days. And I encourage you, I beg you, invite people, bring them to church. But let me ask you this. If you went over and spoke to that neighbor and somehow the conversation came up and you led the conversation to spiritual things and you asked them if they were saved and they said, no, I'm really not. Could you take your Bible, tell your story how you were saved and share the gospel and tell Jesus' story and lead them to Christ from the scripture? Could you do that? If the answer to that question is no, that's okay for now, but you can't stay that way. 